Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Like I said, we're, we're picking up in James 3, uh, verses 13 to the, eight, the end of the chapter, which is verse 18. Uh, this is really kind of James pulls back just a little bit. We've been really kind of in the weeds as we've walked through James. He gets very, very specific, very practical about situations that we go through in our lives. You know, if you've been following along during our series, we started in James uh, 1, verse 5. Uh, James kind of kicks this off. He says, hey, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God because God will give that to him. And then he starts going through situation after situation in our lives. He says, hey, you know, we've got pride that we've got to deal with in our lives. Let the lowly exult in their... Uh, uh, or, sorry, let me, the um, rich uh, exult in their humiliation because riches are temporary. He says we need to be those that resist sin and temptation. Uh, hey, you know, we should be quick to hear, but slow to speak and slow to anger. He says, hey, when you read Scripture, when you read the commands of God, don't just like, read them and then forget. He says, read them and then put them into practice. Uh, and finally, chapter 1, uh, he kind of concludes by saying, real faith comes out in those that care for those that can't care for themselves. You know, I'm sure as we went through this, is all stuff like, oh, yeah, we've got all this stuff figured out. You know, this is not helpful. This was not something that we need to work on in our lives, right? No. Like, these are things that as we go through, it's like, man, this is something that we all have so far to grow in. But James doesn't just let us off the hook. He's not like, hey, you know what? It would be better if you uh, did a little bit more of that. But nobody's perfect, so don't worry about it too much. Now, in chapter 2, he just doubles down and keeps after us. He says, hey, you know, in life there are people that uh, really can't do much for you, and then there's others that can help you get a leg up in life, can really kind of benefit you. He says you shouldn't show any partiality between those two groups of people. Treat them the same. Hey, if somebody comes to you with a need uh, and they need some help, then you need to help them. You should meet that need rather than just send them on their way with some uh, polite words. It says that our faith leads to action. It, living faith comes out in good works. And then he concludes what we talked about last week. He says, hey, it should be just as hard for you to use your mouth to praise God and to curse man made in his image as it would be to go down to Galveston Bay, dip a cup in, and have like good drinking water. He says it's impossible for those two things to exist at the same time. And then he, he kind of pauses, I think, in verse 13 and steps back just a little bit. He returns to that idea of wisdom that he introduced in verse one, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 5, to kind of book in this section of teaching and instruction. So that's where we'll pick up. Uh, if you've got it, we'll start in verse 13. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James kind of kicks this thing off with this introducing this question. He says, who among you is wise? When he talks about wisdom, I think we've talked about this in here before, he's not talking about just knowledge of facts, just this base of knowledge. The wisdom for James is the ability to navigate life circumstances. You can look at a situation and go, okay, I know how this should be approached. We all probably have people in our phones that if we run into a situation in uh, work or in our marriage or in our parenting, uh, we know somebody that we can call because we see them, not that they have everything in life figured out, but we've seen how they conduct themselves in a sphere 
uh, of their life and say, hey, that person's got some wisdom to them. They can give me advice and some counsel on how to navigate this for myself. And so we call them when we encounter something like, I'm not really sure what to do here. And James is saying, he's told us early in chapter 1, he says, hey, you know, yes, it's good to seek wisdom from other people. People can speak into our lives and speak truth and help us. But ultimately, we should seek this wisdom from God, the one that's created this and the one that's the ultimate source of wisdom. We should go to him and say, God, please help me to navigate this because there are situations in life, all of this stuff that James has been saying, hey, how do we know when we should hold our tongue or when we should speak? How do we know how not to show partiality? We need the wisdom of God to do all of this stuff that James is calling us to. And so this is the idea that he kind of returns to, and he asks this question, who among you is wise and understanding? And understanding uh, has kind of got the sense of like expert skill. Uh, The idea to kind of take those together, it's two words that mean similar. He's basically saying, not only do you know what to do, but you also know how to get it done. So it's not just like, I know how I would approach this, but I I lack the power to accomplish it. He's saying, no, you have both the knowledge and the skill to carry it out. And so James says this question, who among you is wise? And it's kind of a funny question because I think we approach it uh, really in kind of three different groups of people. There's one group of people that says, eh, not me. You know, I'm, like, I'm going to go ahead and check out. I don't feel very wise. It's like when, if you remember, like maybe this was true of you, when I was in high school, we'd have a sub and they'd roll the TV cart in. And you're like, it's going to be a good day. You know, I get a 50-minute nap right in the middle of my school day. You know, sometimes we say, oh, well, clearly James isn't talking to me because I don't have wisdom That's not what James is getting after here. He doesn't let us off the hook like that because the scripture elsewhere calls us to walk in wisdom. Ephesians um, 5, 15, and 16 says that we're called to walk in wisdom because of the days we find ourselves in. We even have an entire section of scripture called the wisdom literature. So that if we say, man, I really need to grow in wisdom, we have the book of Proverbs that we can go to and say, God, help me to grow in this. So if we say, man, I don't feel very wise, the call of action to us would be, well, then seek it out. Seek God for it. But then there's another group of people that feel kind of self-secure in this. They go, you know, I feel like I've kind of got life a little bit figured out. I don't know everything, but I've got some wisdom, and things are going fairly well for me. But oftentimes the people that think that don't have the type of wisdom that James is talking about. He'll differentiate. If you caught it, we'll talk about it in a few minutes. But there's a different kind of wisdom that's not the kind of wisdom that God grants. There's a kind of wisdom that we think we're wise. We're like, hey, we can repeat the right answers. But when it comes to applying it in an actual situation in life, at the office, at the soccer field, uh, in our relationships, we can't get it done. And there's also a type of wisdom that basically takes the world around us and their value system and sprinkles in just enough Bible words and Christianity to make it sound good, but it's not actually reflecting the type of life that James here calls us to. And there's a third group, and I think this is where James wants us to live, kind of assumes that as believers we are living. We look at our life and say, I have a little, maybe I have some wisdom, uh, but I'm growing in it. It's something that God is calling me to, and I'm seeking and striving to grow more and more. And what James is challenging us to here is that we should have a lifestyle that's in line with the wisdom, whatever measure of wisdom that God has granted to us as we seek to continue to grow in it. And so then he continues, hey, you know, if all of us can say, I've got some wisdom, I'm seeking to grow more, but what are we to do with that wisdom? James says that that should come out of us in good conduct, uh, that should show in the good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. I think this uh, good conduct phrase is really a parallel to what he was talking about earlier when he says, faith without works is dead. We went over that uh, a couple of weeks ago here in James 2. And we talked about is James is very clear that when we have faith, if we have a living faith, it plays out in works. The works don't 
create the living faith, but they are the result of it. In the same way, if you took a dead body, if you took a corpse, you could hook it to machinery and it could push air into the lungs and pull air out. It could give it some semblance of breathing, but that wouldn't make any more life than be in that body than there was there before. Now, living things breathe. That has to happen. If you are living, part of that means that you are going to be breathing in and out. If you cease to do that, you won't be healthy. You won't be living much longer. But the life came first. The living faith came before the works. And in the same way, as living faith brings works, wisdom in whatever measure we have brings forth this good conduct. If you have an NIV, um, it translates this good life. It's not referring to like a handful of morally correct actions, uh, but just an entire manner of living. Kind of the idea is that every sphere of your life is characterized in this way. Not how you handle yourself in a specific moment, but just how you approach all of life, the type of person you are. And he says that this looks like deeds done in the meekness of wisdom. Let's talk about meekness for a minute, because as I was kind of reflecting and preparing this week, uh, two things came to mind. One... That's not a word we encounter very often. And I'm going to go ahead and guess none of us probably threw that one out in a situation. But two, even when we do encounter it, we don't really think of it as a positive connotation. Like if somebody came up to you and said that about you, you wouldn't take it as a compliment, probably. You know, hey, you know what I really like about you? You're just so meek. You're just the meekest person I know. You're like, come over here, I'll show you meekness. You know, like, we wouldn't want that because of like, oh, am I meek? What do you mean? But the New Testament approaches it really differently because it is a virtue See, I think when we think meek, we kind of have a negative connotation because we envision the person that's kind of, you know, shuffles around and looks at their feet and maybe mumbles a little. You know, it's like, I think we think of it as like timid, timidity and meekness. Uh, but the New Testament thinks about it very differently. Jesus praises it as a virtue. It's one of the Beatitudes. It's his great teaching in Matthew 5, right before he kicks off the Sermon on the Mount. He says what? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Like, according to Jesus, there comes a time when the meek run the whole show. And it's their meekness that is what qualifies them to be able to do this. Well, it's not the timid will inherit the earth. It's not, James C. is not saying that it's uh, the timidity of wisdom. The, G, uh, the Bible sees it differently. And so we need to change how we perceive it and understand what uh, James is trying to get after here so we understand what he's calling us to uh, if you have a different translation than the ESV that I read, uh, you may have it rendered something like the gentleness of wisdom or the considerateness of wisdom uh, or even the humility of wisdom. All of these are just kind of our English translations trying to get a sense of what James is fully communicating. And that sense is uh, this. When he says meekness, he's not talking about timidity. He's talking about it's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-worth. I read that this week, and I just love that definition of it. The, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Um, because that's counter to the way that our world operates. Our world operates trying to be impressed by my own self-importance, to feel, to build up my own self-importance. I would imagine if you thought about it, you might have met one or two people in your life that you have a sneaking suspicion, just is a little bit more concerned than they ought to be with their own sense of self-importance. Can you think of one? Maybe ourselves sometimes, if we're honest. You know, I think maybe we don't see this anywhere more clearly than in social media. Like the whole uh, enterprise is built on trying to call attention to our own self-importance. Think about it. Like, hey, you know what? I've got a few opinions and some things going on in my life I want to share. Oh, who do you want to share them with? The whole world. 
Like, they should all know what I've got going on. Like, that's kind of an odd thing when you think about it. But listen, Instagram and TikTok and whatever else comes next doesn't create the drive to do this. All it's doing is tapping into the fact that we like other people to look at us and applaud us and to build us up because that's kind of how we're bent. And James here is calling us to something that's very, very different. He's saying, hey, instead of being the natural preoccupation with yourself that we are all kind of naturally born into, that gets reversed on its head because of what Christ has done for us. The preoccupation with ourselves turns into meekness. It turns into humility. And this is kind of, he confirms this by, in verse 14, when he talks about kind of contrasting this type of life. He says, what, what's the different type of life other than what's characterized by meekness of wisdom? In verse 14, what leaps out, it says that if there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this is the opposite of what he just said. And notice he doesn't uh, dismiss all ambition. Like, there is a type of drive, there's a type of uh, achievement, a type of desire to do and to be uh, that can be God-honoring and make the world a better place, a good place. But there's also a type of ambition that's focused on ourselves. And we want to achieve something that so others can look at us and be impressed with us. There's nothing wrong with receiving a compliment uh, or striving to get promoted at work and get more responsibility. The ultimate question for us as believers is, are we doing that in order to bring glory to God and good to others? Or are we doing that so people can look at us and see that we might be a big deal? I read somewhere, um, I've never been able to find it since, but it stuck with me for many years. It said one of the results of humility, one of the fruits that it bears out, is that it gives us the ability to look at something that we've done, something that we've accomplished, in the same way we would look at something that was done or accomplished by somebody else. And so it stuck with me because there's a difference. I think we all kind of know that. Like, when I look at something that somebody else has done, I can appreciate the thing, the result, the product for what it is. I can see its attributes and go, man, that's a, a great thing that you did. I'm, that's amazing. But when I look at something that I've done, so often what I want people to do is look at that and then turn around and say, oh, wow, Tyler's a pretty, like, he was able to do it. Like, I look at that and I have my sense of self-worth tied up in that rather than just looking at it and going, hey, that turned out really well. I think sometimes when you think about, oh, what does it mean to be humble? It's like we have to say, like, downplay things. Hey, that was a great job. Oh, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Well, it's not that. No, I think we can say, yeah, I'm happy with how this went. I'm, I think that's a great thing. Like, I'm glad with how this went. I'm uh, so glad that I was able to be a part of achieving this, but without tying ourselves to it and without using it to hopefully have people turn around and cheer us. And bitter jealousy is just the same side of the same coin. Or sorry, yeah, uh, bitter jealousy. Because selfish ambition is kind of looking out and saying, hey, how can I use the things of this world to draw attention to myself? Bitter jealousy is just looking at other people and saying, well, why don't I have what they have? Don't I deserve that as well? Why do they get that and I don't? And they both stem from the same source, just a general preoccupation with ourselves. And the Bible recognizes that this is our condition. The second greatest commandment, when Jesus gives it, he says what? He says, love others as yourself. Even in that, it assumes that we have a love for ourselves. We have a concern for ourselves. And so Scripture just says, hey, you know what we should do? Because we follow this God that has done so much for us, is we should take that same level of concern we have for our own needs and apply that to the people around us. Paul in Philippians uh, says something similar. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility consider others more important than ourselves. It's the same thought, and it's completely counter to our natural instinct, but it's exactly what the gospel calls us to. 
because we say we follow a God that was willing to step out of heaven to take on flesh and all the difficulties, all the challenges that came with it, to live a perfect life and obedience that we should have lived, and then to die a death that we deserve because of our sin in order that we could have a relationship with God and have forgiveness and a right relationship. If that's the God we follow, then it's inconsistent to then say that's the example in my life, but then I'm still going to be more concerned about myself than I am the people around me. And every command in the New Testament is, falls under this umbrella. There's plenty of directives, like Paul and James and Peter and John and Jesus tell us lots of things that we should be about. But all of those are just applications of this principle under different life circumstances, under different scenarios that we encounter. Everything that the Bible says about striving for unity, all the Bible says about how we speak to each other, how we forgive each other, all the Bible says about our work ethic and our sexual ethic, and how we relate as parents and children and spouses, uh, and all of these things, all of this is just operating and working out this principle in the various spheres of our life. All of it assumes that under the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being made less self-focused and more God-focused and others-focused. And James continues this in chapter, or sorry, in verse 15. He says that this, meaning this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition uh, and the resulting way of life, is not what comes from wisdom from above. It's the wisdom that God grants. Instead, what is it? He says there is a type of wisdom here, but it's earthly, meaning it's from this natural world. It's unspiritual. It's not from God. And ultimately, he says it's demonic. This is really strong language for him to use because it means it's not neutral. Like James won't let us say, well, you know, it could be a little bit better, but this really isn't too bad either to operate from this. We can't downplay it and say, I'll grow a little bit more when I have a chance later on. James gives us no middle ground. He says it's one or the other. We're either living in response to the wisdom that comes from God or we're living out of this earthly wisdom that ultimately is demonic in origin. And if it's that, if that's where it came from, we can't act out of that without damaging others and even our own soul. C.S. Lewis, I don't know that he was thinking about this verse when he wrote this in Mere Christianity, but it it lines up in in that kind of famous book from many years ago. C.S. Lewis writes that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all of your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is a state of war and hatred with God, with its fellow creatures and with itself. Each of us at each moment is progressing to this one state or the other. And so the question that James poses is, which is it? Which type of wisdom are we seeking to operate out of? Are being shaped into a heavenly creature because we're living uh, in accordance with his wisdom from below, or being shaped into what C.S. Lewis calls the hellish creature because we're living with worldly wisdom? And then he moves from this uh, into, like, what does this end up looking like? What is the result of these two types of life in verse 16? He says, jealousy and selfish ambition uh, where they are, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You know, look around. I think the world operates naturally out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And you look and see that it's what we find in the world. We look around and we see disorder and vile practice. And I think it's one of those things that everyone agrees on. Religious, irreligious, Christ follower, non-Christ follower, everyone looks around and says, this world really isn't working out the way we think it should. But what we find is everybody has their own uh, diagnosis of what the actual problem is. 
you know, we're rolling into kind of the height of this next election cycle, and so more and more on my TV, I'm seeing ads for somebody that's saying, hey, here's what's wrong with our society, and I'm the guy to fix it, and this is what I'm going to do. Um, or that guy's all that's wrong with the society, so vote for me because I'm not him. Um, but we look around, and the world says, everyone knows this isn't really working the way we want it to, but everyone says, well, it's, it's about economics. It's about racial tension. It's about uh, politics, Republicans, Democrats. It's about this issue or that issue or those type of people or these type of people. That's the problem. James here can go, yeah, maybe some of all of that is true, but the root cause of the problem is not those things. It's the fact that the human heart is, operates out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And this is what Scripture tells us. Go back all the way to the beginning. Adam and Eve, what do they do? The first sin, they want to be a little bit more like God, and so they disobey God's command. And the second story, the very next story, is Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy for him. And then just through the rest of Genesis, through the rest of the Old Testament, through the rest of the New Testament, over and over and over we see these patterns play out. And then we turn around and look at human history outside of Scripture, and we see these patterns just continue to play out. But James here, by what Jesus has done, calls us to be different. And he gives us that uh, picture of this in verse 17, where he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a stark contrast to what James has just told us. He paints this picture and says, Hey, this is what life can look like when it's lived in accordance with wisdom from above. Not timidity, not anything like that, but this meekness out of wisdom that we're not overly impressed by our own self sense of self-importance. You can see, if I'm self-focused, if I'm trying to be impressed by myself, I want others to be impressed by me, then it's really hard to be peaceable and gentle when somebody wrongs me. No, I need justice. I need uh, to be made whole. I need this to be made right. Uh, I have rights that I insist on. But if I'm not wrapped up in my own uh, world, not the central figure in my own story, then I'm free to say, no, I'm not concerned with making sure I get justice. I trust God with that. And so we can look and say, what's the best way to move forward to heal this situation? We can be full of mercy and open to reason because we don't have to be right. We don't have to have our, uh, our word heard, our say said. Instead, we can just go, oh, okay, let's move forward. Let me show mercy and reason. I don't have to be the hero and the central figure in my own story because I'm living in light of something so much bigger than myself and I'm trusting that God is going to set these things right and so I'm just seeking to be, as Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, an agent of reconciliation in the world that we find ourselves in. I think this is what Paul also says in Galatians 5. Uh, he says it is for freedom that Christ set us free. You know, we're taught, we, we believe kind of naturally that freedom is found in our self-interest and seeking after my own desires. But according to the scripture, that's actually a slavery. That's a form of bondage. Because if we're seeking our own desires, that I'm forced to react in a certain way to defend myself, to put myself up, uh, to try and push my own interests forward. But if I say, no, I can be others-focused and I can trust God is going to take care of me, then I get freed up to choose how I respond to different situations. I can respond otherwise. And this is what scripture says is where true freedom and joy is because we're seeking and striving to live in the way that God actually designed us to live. So then how do we walk out of this? Because this is a big ask. This is something that's like, we can't get there on our own. So how do we just take a step towards it? Well, I think the first step 
is what we talked about at the start in James 1, chapter 5, where James says, if we lack wisdom, which we can all say, I need to grow in this, I need more of this, we pray. James 1, 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You know, James describes this as wisdom from above. Its source is from God. We can't find it on our own. You're not going to go home and, like, sort through your couch cushions and turn this stuff up. Like, the only place that we can get it is going to God and asking him to bestow it on us. But the great thing is it says that God gives generously. He wants us to have this. And so we can go expecting to receive this from God. Maybe not all at once, maybe not as quick as we would want to receive it, but we can expect that God will give this to us. But we need to be diligent in praying and asking and pleading God every day to help us to navigate these situations, these difficulties. Help me to live in light of what you've called me to live in light of. Second, I think we need to meet God where we are in our own journey. One of the things, I think, a danger of a, a talk like this, of a, uh, looking at these verses, is we get so caught up in like, what we're not and what we wish we were that we get discouraged at where we are. Because we look at it and go, man, I've got so much I need to grow in. I fall short so much. I wish I had more wisdom. I wish I had more faithfulness. I wish I knew the Bible better. But we're not there yet. See, one of the great things, though, about the sovereignty of God, like believing that God is in control over all this, is if we believe that, then we believe that God met you exactly when and where he intended to meet you. So often we're like, man, I wish I just would have been in church earlier. I wish I would have known God sooner. But God met you when and where he intended to meet you. He wasn't like going down the highway and he's like, oh, I missed my exit. I guess I'm going to take another decade to get back and transform that person's life. God met you when he intended to. And the Bible also says that he's the primary driver of our sanctification, which is the Bible word for our growth to look more and more like Jesus. And so if God's the primary driver of our sanctification, that it means he will accomplish it. Not might, but will make us look more like Jesus. In Philippians 1, this is why Paul writes, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, you aren't a finished product yet. None of us are. But the guarantee of Scripture, the promise of Scripture, is that one day we will be. We will be finished. Yes, God gives us things to do. Ephesians 2.10 says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works so that we may walk in them. But it's not doing the works that transforms us to look more like Jesus. It's that as we seek to do the works and as we seek to live faithfully, God's Spirit is at work in us, transforming us in ways that we can't even perceive so that over days and months and years and decades, we are shaped to be more like him. I heard something uh, really interesting a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Trent and Jarrett and I went to a pastor's kind of one all-day thing, uh, actually on how to teach James and understand it better. And there's about 30, 40 people in the room probably. And we uh, were learning from a guy that taught at a seminary and has written a commentary on James, just, you know, really has invested a lot of his life in understanding uh, this book in a way that um, takes a lot of time to understand. Uh, But one of the remarks he made is he said that when James talks about uh, completion, when he talks about maturity, when he talks about uh, perfection, he is thinking about it differently than how we think about it. Because when we think about those words, we think about it almost in the sense of like a, a location, like a finish line. You know, like if you're mature, that means you've risen to a certain level. You've crossed a boundary. If you're complete, if you're perfect, you don't do anything more. It's, it's exactly how it needs to be. Uh, but this man said that James, the way he uses it, the way he thinks about it, 
throughout his letter is not a location and not a destination, but it's a trajectory and a speed. What I mean is like, for James, when he talks about what it means to be a mature Christian, he means maybe more the Christian that's been a Christian for all of six weeks and knows almost nothing, but is investing time in the Word, is investing time in prayer, is striving to know God, to be around God's people, and striving to obey. Uh, contrast that with the person that grew up in church, still attends, you know, knows all the right answers to the Bible questions, uh, but outside of Sunday morning, there's not really much growth in striving to look more like God. For James, it's the person, the young believer, that doesn't know much that's the more mature Christian. The one that we think of that we think of as more mature, you know, they, they know all the right answers. They may tithe the church. The new believer may not even know what tithing means because they haven't seen it yet. But it's that person that James is, that's the uh, mature Christian. And so for us, coming out of here, we get so wrapped up in our location and wishing we were a little farther down, to wish we were more fully formed, that we didn't have a certain sin issue that we'd conquered that. But the, the call here of James is that's not the focus. The focus for us walking out of here is, am I striving to glow, grow closer to God wherever I am on my journey with him? Am I seeking to obey him, to follow him, to grow with him? Third, invest in a regular gathering of Christian believers that have permission to speak into your life. One of the funny things about uh, preoccupation with self, with the self-centeredness, is it often robs us of self-awareness. You know what I mean? Like when I'm in a situation and I'm being selfish, it has been known to happen once or twice. I'm the only person in the room that's really just completely unaware of that. Everyone around me can be like, man, you're kind of acting like a, like a thing. You know, you're being selfish. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? I'm not. No, I'm good. You know? And so we need other people that can tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, how you're living your life in this moment, you need to make some adjustments. We need people around us. I need people around me that I go to and say, hey, I'm having this issue in my marriage or at my work or with my kids. And they can go, the issue is not them. The issue is you just being kind of wrapped around yourself. But to have those type of relationships, we have to invest in them. We have to build the trust. We have to build uh, the, just the people know us and know our tendencies and know how we try to hide sometimes behind external appearances, but they can see through that and call us to account and call us to be different. And one of the challenges of this that I see so often is that sometimes when things are good, when life is kind of easy, people pull back from investing in community because there's other things that they want to spend time on. But one of the dangers in that that I've seen play out with people is that when people pull back, the fact is life will get hard at some point and will be challenging. And if we haven't invested and nurtured relationships when things are good, uh, when we need them to come around us, we won't find them. We won't have that as a resource to pull from because we didn't nurture those and grow those when we could have. If we are looking for community when kind of our life uh, gets difficult, it, it's too late to invest and grow those relationships then. We need to do it uh, now. So my encouragement would be to find a place to do that, to call other believers around you and to grow in those relationships, to walk with them through life. And finally, um, I think... There's something to be said for intentionally looking for circumstances that challenge us in these ways, that challenge us to be uh, impartial and sincere, to open to reason, peaceable, gentle, full of mercy and good fruits. Because we know the situations that make that hard for us. We know where that stuff begins to well up inside us, and we just, you know, it's hard to do that. Um, I was talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago that made a really interesting remark. He said he's made a practice in his life 
of whenever he flies southwest, which he travels quite a bit, he goes immediately to the back of the plane. And he said he does that because he's a middle-class American, and he knows most of the time he gets what he wants when he wants it. And so he makes a practice of intentionally putting himself in a situation that he knows is going to frustrate him and cause him to be patient with other people. Because we've all been there, and you're like, you've got the, like, the business traveler that's out the door in like two seconds, and then you've got the person that's like, did you unpack on the flight? Like, why is it taking you so long to get your stuff together and get off this plane? And he knows he's going to put himself in that situation where it's going to come up in his life. And he's going to have to go, God, help me be patient in this moment. Um, we teach, you know, one of the things we're trying to do, and we've, our uh, son's still young, he's in kindergarten, but one of the things we're trying to develop in our parenting is, you know, put him in positions of low-risk failure. Not low risk of failure. Sometimes that's what parents do, and it is a disservice to kids. Low risk failure. Because right now, uh, everything in his life is just low risk. Stakes are not high. Um, I was talking to somebody even this morning. Like, There's very little chance, probably zero chance, that like the cops are going to show up with him at 2 a.m. on some Friday night. You know? Or it's been a crazy weekend if that happens. But, you know, like he's five. Now, when he's 15, when he's 16, that's a different ball game. So we have to invest in him now and try to create situations that he grows in adversity, that he grows in how to handle situations, that he, uh, things don't always work out well for him, where he practices making decisions that, again, the stakes aren't high, because one day they will be. And I wonder, could we do that in our own Christian life, create situations with low stakes that we know will force us to develop a little bit more gentleness and patience? Like, what if we, this week, when we go grocery shopping, intentionally choose the line with the, it's the long line with the slow cashier and the person that probably will wait to pull out their checkbook until every single grocery is scanned and bagged and put in the cart. You know, and it's kind of that thing. You go into that situation and go, God, make me just a little bit more patient in this. What if we find something, a, a God-honoring cause uh, to give to, and we give just a little bit more than we're comfortable with and say, God, I don't really want to do this, but use this to make me a more generous giver. What if we call the person that we know exasperates us and invite them to lunch and say, God, help me to love this person because I don't really like to love this person. I think so often we wait and say, I will do these things once God develops the virtue in me. But as this guy kind of said, shared his story with Southwest and I reflected on this sermon, I started thinking, what if doing the thing is exactly what God will use to develop the trait in us? We say, I want to be a person that does this more so I'm going to do the thing, and I'm going to pray that God meets me in that and makes me just a little bit more gentle in this, makes me just a little bit more open to reason. And that way, when we have this situation where we're not in control, when we don't choose to enter into it, it's not the first time we've exercised that muscle. We've been training ourselves and trusting that God is at work in and through us to be the type of person that can do that thing. And so we do it when it feels unnatural until it starts to feel natural because God has changed us. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you um, that you do promise that you will make us look more like Jesus. May we partner with you in that. May we seek to do that. May we uh, come to you in prayer in every situation uh, and just ask that you would do that. May we be a people and a community that's characterized by this meekness of wisdom. There would be a completely different way of life from what's natural to us, but we would grow ever more in that. We would ask you to continue to give us wisdom so that we can live uh, exactly like you call us to. We can live a life that's God-honoring and other, 
that seeks to benefit those around us because they're created in your image. Those things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.